some time ago, we actually was going through a book called Acts. Uh, it's been a long time, so I thought I might remind you that that is indeed what we're doing. Uh, and so if you will open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, we're going to look through chapter 6 and, and really through chapter 7. We're going to cover um, a fairly fast pace, um, looking at Stephen. And what strikes me as we look at Stephen and all of the church, this thing, this movement, and that's really what the church is. It's, it's not a place. It is a movement. And we want to get back to the essentials of a movement and less from a place. Really hadn't gathered yet a name, but it is growing at extraordinary rates in Jerusalem. And what's so amazing about it is it's so ordinary, and you get this with Stephen. He was an ordinary person, and and that's what a church is, a collection of ordinary people. But they have an extraordinary God. You see this all throughout nature, how God takes something ordinary, rather common, and makes some things beautiful with it. I think the uh, perfect example is the oyster. I mean, the oyster looks ugly if you see it on the, on the, the sands of the beach. I think, well, that's just an ordinary-looking uh, artifact of the sea. I mean, there's clams that look much, be- much more beautiful. But the oyster, by taking an errant irritant within it, wraps that irritant with a, a, just a beautiful substance of which people will dive under the sea to try to retrieve because it's a pearl. Something so ordinary that through the nature that God has designed creates something extraordinary using irritants to do so. I mean, seeds look so commonplace, but yet given the right circumstances can turn into beautiful flowers. You need to understand that we as humans are as oysters and seeds that may have irritants come into our life that must bury themselves into the ground, receive the sun, receive the rain, but out of it, with God's working, becomes something beautiful and extraordinary. That is the church. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, and we're going to see how God continues to inject the church with amazing growth using ordinary people using irritants and it seems as much as uh, people are opposing the church yet somehow God keeps overpowering and using the obstacles to reproduce in amazing ways and so as this we're going to look at what is involved in a healthy church a church that reproduces. One of our goals as a, as a church is to create reproducing communities up to the third generation all around us. Not in the rooms of our building, they can certainly be used, but in the communities around us. To see the discipleship community start, it is a, a vision, a mission that goes back to right here in the book of Acts. As we look at this, what's going to be involved for that to happen? Uh, it wasn't too long ago, I went to the doctor and I wanted to know, am I healthy? And the, and the doctor said, no, you're not. And, and there's certain things they look for for a healthy person, and one of them seems to be the blood pressure. And evidently, you know, 140, 150 over 90 isn't regarded as healthy. <laughs> uh, and so uh, they said, well, here's what you've got to do. 
Here's what the doctor said. If it comes out of a can, if it comes out of a box, don't eat it. <laughs> like, well, okay, give me something realistic here, you know? Uh, and so that was his, his word of advice to me. And so as we look at this scripture, it's giving us, this is what a healthy church is. Let's, let's look at what happens. And all through the book of Acts, we're going to see these lessons of discipleship community. Uh, and so we're going to start with Acts chapter 6, and we're going to see how it rises out of an irritant. Uh, in fact, as we read through the book of Acts, we're going to see how this new rising church in Acts chapter 4 is getting opposed by a persecuting government. And we're going to see how that church responds, and they respond by growing in a powerful way. Uh, then in Acts of chapter 5, we see the internal attack on the church with Ananias, Sapphira, and hypocrisy in sin. And we see how the power of God exposes it. And you know what the end result of that? Is people are fearing God in greater ways using this irritant. God says, okay, let me show you how I can overpower that. And then in the end of Acts chapter 5, it goes back to the... Uh, church religious leaders are not the church leaders but the religious leaders opposing the church and how god uses that and now we come back to Acts six and seven and switches back to internal struggles that threaten the church all right so what is the internal uh struggle so uh we're in start in honor of this being god's word i'm going to ask that we stand as we read beginning with acts chapter six we're not going to read the entirety of six and seven um but selections of it. Now, in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, which we know from records that it's at least 10,000 people in a city that's 40,000, a complaint by the Hellenists, which were the Greek-like Jews, rose against the Hebrews, which were Jews-Jews, all right, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurius, several other names here, cannot pronounce them well uh verse six these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them and the word of god continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in jerusalem and great many of the priests became obedient to the faith which by the way verse seven needs to be our goal as well that the word of god increase and the disciples multiply and stephen full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people and some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel." And the high priest said, Are these things so? 
And in verse 2, Stephen responds with a sermon. The longest sermon in the New Testament by not an apostle, but by a deacon. And then let's go to the conclusion of that sermon. Verse 51, chapter 7. An arousing conclusion. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced before the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. They did not respond by singing just as I am. They responded, verse 54, enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. I've not seen you do that yet. I'm not sure what that looks like, but it's not a good response. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. You may be seated. When we historians look at the Christian growth, one of the things that they are often puzzled with is how Rome, which was so brutal in its ethics and regards of humanity, sexuality, and otherwise, was revolutionized so quickly by the Christian faith. In fact, a Yale historian, Kenneth Scott Lauderette, wrote this, Never in so short a time has any other religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or economic, without the aid of physical force or of social or cultural prestige, achieved so commanding a position in such an important culture. In other words, what he's saying is that the Christian faith did not conquer, did not change an empire by conquest, by killing people. It wasn't introduced by the elite of society. These were not the philosophers of the age that were influenced. These were not the artists. These were not the celebrities. These were, these were fishermen and other similar people. Yet in so short a time, so common a person with very little power, military, political, cultural, yet so quickly revolutionized a significant empire. I'm just going to present to you that the seeds that were there are still here with us today if we will plant the seeds of influence, of disciple-making. You know, we talk about Islam, religion, it's over a billion people. But when we look at how that's grown, it's been done by conquest the christian faith 
has had times of sin where we have tried to force it. But when it's at its healthiest, it's right here in Acts, and it's not done by conquest. It's done by the power of God. Will we be a people, ordinary, with an extraordinary God to see God at work? So, as it spreads, as it grows, you see this complaint. It's moving among Jews, all right, Hebrews of Hebrew culture, but then there are the, the Greek-speaking Jews who are, look like Greek and talk like Greek, and, and so there's somewhat of a cultural divide, all right? Uh, and so this might be of the, uh, the redneck versus the, the northern, okay? Uh, but even more extreme than uh, what we're talking about here. And so uh, they've got uh, all the apostles who are of Jews and not really Greek-speaking, all right? So maybe they are the northern or the redneck, whichever way you want to look at it, all right? Uh, but then the, the movement is starting to branch out among these cultural divides, and now they're starting to make an accusation because as a new church a growing church, they see love as essential, serving as critical, and so they're taking care of the widows in their area. The apostles are spending time making sure that food is distributed to those who are lacking. But as this happens, they get overwhelmed, and an accusation starts going about that the church is being racist. The church is playing favorites. This is the most sinister attack yet on the church. More threatening than religious leaders trying to kill them is the church playing tribes. All right? And so what do they do with this threat? And so you have verses uh, two through five, the response. And so as they look at there's there's a couple problems with the complaint. One, as you see this, they assign motives. As they're making this complaint, they, they assume that the apostles are being racist. They're assigning motives. You need to understand in a church, you cannot know the motives of any person. Only God knows the heart. And so if that is the case, why don't we as followers of Jesus Christ Give the benefit of doubt to people. I'm afraid that we fell at this. I'm going to present up President Obama. How many times do conservative-leaning Christians assume motives? I just want to present that as something for us to consider. And that goes across the board, doesn't it? I just want to present that as, as just an example. I don't, there's a lot of things I disagree with them about. But one of the things we've got to be careful of, not just in political realms, but in our churches, that we do not assign motives. God only knows the heart of a person. So why don't we as believers give a benefit of a doubt out of love? And so they're failing in that. And that is a, a serious problem to assign these motives. And then the second problem is they never really brought it to the leadership. You notice how it says it, it arose. It arose. It was a complaint, 
shared with someone else, that was shared with someone else, to the point where it has now become sinister in its church and, and the threatening the unity of the church, and it arose. A couple problems here. I'm not talking to the right people about their concerns. So, what do they do? The church responds, so do the, do the apostles give up the word of God, or do they give up the service to the widows? Which one should we do? Should we stop being loving? Should we stop being serving? Or should we stop teaching the word of God and making sure we have the time set apart? Either way you go, you've got a problem that speaks to the identity of the church. So instead of them saying, okay, let's choose, let's raise up people in our church to handle all that's being asked of us to do. And so that was the response, and this is where the birth of deacons are born, are right here. The idea of we have some who will be leading servants in our church. And so they themselves, the apostles, say, you know what, we're going to keep on teaching and praying we're going to teach the Word of God, we're going to study the Word of God, and we're going to pray, because that is critical. And we're going to make sure that the widows are still being served, because that also is critical. It's not one without the other. So, let me just bring the, uh, a few lessons, just three lessons, really, that comes from this. One, the Word of God is not to be sacrificed in disciple-making. The Word of God is not to be sacrificed in disciple-making. One of the when we talk about elders, and we're looking at this, we want to find people who are committed to the Word of God and teaching the Word of God. And I'm not just talking about in a large group setting like this. Not everyone can do this. But looking for people who can do it even in one-on-one situations to explain the Word of God, to study the Word of God, be committed to knowing what the Word of God says. When we are considering this and we are putting names down as elder recommendations, we get to ask ourselves, do they know God's Word? Are they seeking to learn it? All right. Before anyone can know the Word of God, they've got to be committed to the study of it. And so as we look at this in our church, we need to make sure that's happening. In our Sunday school classes, in our small group, our main criteria is God's Word. I know there's sometimes we use books and quarterlies and different lessons, but the essential truth of it must be truths found of God's Word. And that when people are in our small groups, they're learning that, getting that. One of the things that gets me is, is when you look at Stephen— and you read chapter 7, you just survey it, Stephen knows a lot of God's Word off the top of his head. How does he know God's Word? A couple things. One, he himself has applied the Word of God to his life. He's studied it. And second, he's got people teaching him. Here's the thing. The measurement of me as a pastor and the measurement of other leaders in our church as elders it's not how much word of God I know or how much word of God the elders know. The measurement is found as how much of the word of God you know. That you're inspired to study this, to read this, know it for yourself, and you've gotten the tools to do it. All right? And, and so that is a critical component, and there must be in our church those who are committed to this task, to teach it. Now, as we keep on reading, we're going to find something else. Not only is the word of God not to be sacrificed in disciple making. The service is essential in disciple making. 
Service is essential in disciple-making. Why, why do I say that? Well, notice what he says here. As we read this, it has this kind of a anecdotal uh, notice here. That as they are doing this work and teaching others and sharing and serving with the widows. Notice verse 7. Because of this multiplying, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Does this strike you as a little unusual? Why is that phrase there? What is its connection? There's some reason they bring out the fact that priests are coming to know the Lord as Savior with this idea of more widows being distributed and the word of God going out. Now, the priest were not welcoming this news about Jesus Christ. Because when they hear about Jesus Christ, it makes their job totally obsolete. I mean, you hear what they're accusing Stephen of? Stephen is is talking bad about the temple and saying it's not even needed and the law of God is not able to save. We don't like Stephen because he's threatening our job. I mean, after all, I'm a priest and I get paid to do priestly stuff, to work in the temple, and he's saying the temple isn't even needed? They don't receive the gospel well. They are a hostile audience. Why is it that at this point, priests are coming to know jesus as their savior what is the connection with widows being served and the word of god multiplying well here's the connection part of the priest's job was to care for the poor that was part of their job is to care for the poor and now they are seeing thousands of people doing what only the priests did You see, what won the priest over wasn't just the Word of God, but the Word of God active in the lives of people serving the needs of the community. Do you understand that one of the greatest defensive of the Christian faith is not just some logical argument teaching the Word of God? The greatest defense of the Christian faith is you loving people around. Just serving people. When we read some records of the Roman Emperor Julian, who was a fierce persecutor of the early Christians. In fact, he was called Julian the Apostate. He admitted in disgust that these infernal Galileans feed our poor in addition to their own. A historian wrote this, The most astounding to the outside observer was the extent to which poverty was overcome in the vicinity of the communities. Christians spent more money in the streets than the followers of other religions spent in their temple. They could not deny that there was this elaborate giving and serving nobodies, oppressed people, weak people. Let me ask you this question. How do you think the people would be impressed in Nightdale if we spent as much money in serving the oppressed and the weak, the helpless in Nightdale as we spent on our building? (laughs) 
That was the type of behavior that was taking place in this early church. If we spend as much money loving Nightdale as we spent on building a building, how would that change Nightdale? Just a question for us to consider. That's evidently from the observers of others what was going on in the early church. And so when we love people, it became what attracted the priest. We, we just last Sunday, we had a, a banquet. We were directed and, and taught about Love Out Loud for 2015, which is our direction to try to impact specific neighborhoods. And a key component of that is finding out the needs of the neighborhoods around us and figure out, asking God, God, could you use us in meeting these needs? I just want to challenge you. You want to see something happen in your neighborhood? You want to see a discipleship community start? in your neighborhood, it's going to be very much down the line of you giving of your resources to meet the needs of somebody in your neighborhood. A lot of times we talk about, I want to see God at work in Nightdale. I would love to see God change America. And we have this outcry, but let me ask the question that is essential to that. How much of our resources are we willing to give to serve the oppressed in our area? I think that's going to be a valid question we've got to ask ourselves. And let's just start right here in Nightdale. One of the things that was encouraging was just a few weeks ago, a couple was here and then they said, you know, I'm a teacher at Hodgewood Elementary. And we just have heard what you've done. And, you know, when we look at it, there's been relatively few things that we've done. But listen, that is a greater impact on a large group of people than many things that we can do right within our building pray about that think about that let's work together as a church to see how can we change these neighborhoods that we're in the ones that you live in and so that's what's happening You know, it's been said, uh, a study has been done, that 70% of new people decide whether they'll come back to a church in the seven minutes of arriving on campus. Some of you have already made up your mind a long time ago. All right? Seven minutes. That's the time for them to park, walk up here, figure out where is the door of this place, where do we go, and who's there to greet getting your information, coming in, sitting and watching other people come in, music, seven minutes. And Bud tried to get me up here within seven minutes of the service starting today. But a lot of times, I'm not doing that, right? So what makes the difference? How we as a church serve within those seven minutes of the time, doesn't it? How we serve and so part of the question we've got to ask ourselves is, as we're coming in, is who's around me? Do I know them? Have I met them? How can I help them? How can I serve them? And this, these are the easy people, all right? 
These are the people who have come here. Evidently, they, they're searching for something about faith and of the Lord. These are the easy ones. If we can't serve within this time, within this group, how on earth are we going to serve out in the neighborhoods and out on our own with people who may be hostile, the priest of the day? It's something for us to think about. It is an essential component of our church multiplying, increasing, and making disciples. As we ask ourselves, can we make discipleship communities? It's going to be required that we serve our neighborhoods. Serve the people around us. Serve the families in our preschool. Serve the school up the road from us. And wherever God may give us opportunity. So, when that happens, verse 7, they're serving, they're teaching, the word of God increases, there's a great many disciples coming. And the priests are realizing, you know, these Christians are acting like us. They are taking care of the poor, and they are praying in behalf of them to God. And we're going to see how this really comes to play at the end of Stephen's sermon. Because they see Stephen, and they see him. He is an, an exemplar priest. And we don't like him because he's not in our tribe. Matthew 25 is interesting when Jesus is talking about the end time and God holding people account. You know what he looks for in Matthew 25? God is looking for people. He knows who his followers are because they pour themselves out in behalf of those who are widows, those who are in jail, those who are poor. Here's the struggle I went through, church, just to be honest. I grew up in a conservative Bible teaching church. That, that's that's my DNA, so to speak. And here's what was taught me. A church, if it really wants to grow, must be about sharing the gospel at all costs. Everything is about sharing the gospel, and I think that's absolutely true. But here's the problem, is that we don't do anything else but that. And I remember when we started Mills on Wheels probably, I don't know, seven years ago, when that started coming, I was resistant to it. Here's why. Good, conservative, Bible-teaching churches don't do mills on wheels. We're about sharing the gospel. We'll go door-to-door, we'll do, we'll do EE, we'll share the gospel. We don't dilute our focus in doing mills on wheels. Other churches do that. God spoke to me about that. I believe I was convicted of the Holy Spirit about that, that that is wrong mentality. I don't see that in the book of Acts. We do mills on wills as a sign of the gospel working in us. Now, to be honest, I've gone the route a few times, and I've seen the people we visit. They're not going to come here. They can't come here. Why do we do it? No one in Nightdale was doing it. We're still the only route happened in Nightdale. We do it because God provided for us. When we could not provide for ourselves. We do it as a sign of the gospel. And as we go, please pray with, the, with those you meet if you're on that route. Why do we do ESL? You see in the front of the bulletin. I mean, aren't there other, can you do that at school? I mean, you, people get paid for doing that. Why are we doing that? Well, we realize that there were people in our community that they could not speak English. I don't know if they're here legally or illegally. But the fact is, they're here, they're a soul, and they will be before God one day. And as a believer, I'm held accountable for teaching them, exposing them to the gospel. But I can't even speak their language. 
So maybe this is a way we can serve because when we could not communicate with God, God communicated with us. We do it as a sign of the gospel. And what we pray for is out of this, a community can start for the gospel. Why do we do Hodge Road Elementary? Because God's made us as believers. And he treated us when we did not deserve it. And so there's a boldness that goes about this. In chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen's marked. He's full of grace and power. He's doing great wonders and signs among the people. He is a major worker. So he pays the price. Listen, you need to know this. In any disciple community being multiplied, somebody must pay a price. Somebody must suffer. Someone will suffer. I has come keenly aware as I present this to our church of let's pray for, let's work toward discipleship communities that will multiply to the third generation in Nightdale. That with that prayer, with that plea, is also inherent with it, someone's got to suffer to see that happen. Why do I say that? Paul said it in this way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. What? Are you saying that Jesus dying on the cross was insufficient in any way? No. His death on the cross was sufficient for our salvation, wholly sufficient for our salvation. But for the church to multiply, he is asking those who are in him, who are following him, to do the same thing he did. Because the goal is his kingdom of all nations. And that still is a task on point of which others will require to suffer as Christ has suffered, as the founder and pioneer of our faith. So Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, not for, not for salvation, but the suffering that's needed for the body, for the church. And he goes on and he says, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. For the word of God to be fully known in Nightdale, it will require for some of us to suffer what is lacking in God's mission. So Stephen becomes the one. So he's marked out. So we see this group of verse 9, those who are going against him. He responds with this amazing sermon. And then you have this conclusion of which we already read. And then it tells us this really important lesson. Not only is the word of God not to be sacrificed in disciple making, not only is service essential in disciple making, we see also as we read this that personal sacrifice is expected in disciple making. Stephen becomes the one. And they lash out against him. In their anger, they take him out of the city and there they stone him. <laughs> Watch what happens as he's getting stoned. It's an incredible thing. But he 
full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. What, what's the job of the priest? Remember the job of the priest is to pray for the people and pray to God on behalf of those people. And so one day out of the year, they would go into the most holy place to bring the sins of the people before God. And Hebrews tell us that this was just a shadow of the heavenly most holy place. So you get what's going on here? Stephen has his eyes opened up. It doesn't just say that this is a vision. He says he full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven. This wasn't just a vision of heaven. He was looking into heaven. And what does he see? He saw the glory of God. Moses, who, who he, he could just see parts of God's glory. And here this, this Stephen, he's not of the Levite group. He's not of the priest. He doesn't work in the temple. God has granted him access into the most holy place, seeing the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What's significant about that? Hebrews talks about Jesus. And everywhere else you see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Why is he sitting? Because he is showing that his work is finished. It's accomplished. There is nothing else required for our salvation. It's done so he can sit. But evidently, every once in a while, he stands back up. Because there's something else left to do. And that is to receive his holy saints into the most holy place. Jesus is standing because he's receiving an ordinary person filled with the Spirit of God, teaching the Word of God, serving people, and dying for it. How many of us want to be received? with a stand by Jesus. There's Lori. Come. There's Faye. Come. There's Travis. Come. A standing when you enter in not a temple, but a heavenly temple. And what does Stephen do he says behold i see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of god how do priests respond to that (laughs) you've probably seen this in a child Ah! they close their ears and they scream they're enraged They cast him out, and that's when the stoning commences. But notice what he says, verse 59. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Where did he get that from? Jesus? Where did Jesus get that from? Psalms 31. Stephen was a man filled with the word of God and the spirit of Jesus. So even as he's getting pummeled, he's not lashing out curse words. He's lashing out that which he is filled with, the spirit of God and the word of God. And this was the next thing he says. Lord, 
did not hold this sin against them. What is he doing? He's interceding on behalf of the people who was sinning against him at that very moment. Stephen was a priest, even to the end, interceding on behalf of others. And the priests are realizing, this guy, he's more a priest than we are. And it's not just him, there's a bunch of them. There's a whole nation of priests. What do we do with this? You see why the priests are starting to multiply in the faith left and right? But then there's this other one, this kind of a anecdotal little section here. Verse 58. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And the next chapter picks up with Saul enraged more than anyone else at what he has witnessed and seen. Let me just share with you, as you share the gospel with people, some people may get angry and hostile, more hostile than they've ever been to you. Sometimes they're not fighting against you. They're fighting against the Spirit of God that is using you. And they're being convicted. When they're angry, don't be discouraged. It could very well be that they're fighting against God. We'll find that later on when, when Jesus confronts Saul, he says to Saul, Saul, why have you been persecuting me? Not Stephen, not all the countless others. Why have you been fighting against me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. <laughs> Listen, when you're witnessing to someone and they're angry, be encouraged. They're fighting against God. Let God fight the battle. You do the work of love. God, don't hold it against them. Intercede for them on their behalf. Earth was condemning Stephen, but heaven was commending him. The priests and religious leaders of the day were calling Stephen a heretic. But the God of theology was saying, well done. Earth was rejecting him. Heaven was receiving him. There's a, a man by the name of Chang Shen. Back in 1910, or the 1900s, in China, there was this thing called the Boxer Rebellion. In it, in the 1900s, was probably one of the greatest slaughter of Protestant missionaries in the 1900s. 188 adults and children were being killed. 30,000 Chinese Christians were being, were being killed during the summer of 1900. Among them was a man named Cheng Shen. He was one of the best-known evangelists in Manchuria. Before becoming a believer, he was a notorious character. He was a gambler, a thief, a womanizer. At midlife, he lost his eyesight. All his neighbors thought, well, you have been judged by God. That's why you've lost your eyesight. He heard about a missionary hospital that was in the distant area, and so he traveled there hundreds of miles. And when he got there, he found all the beds were full. The hospital chaplain kindly gave his own bed up. 
And over time, the doctors were able to partially restore the vision of this man. You see the service of believers loving this man. In the process, he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. When Chang asked for baptism, the missionary by the name of James Webster told him, you go home and tell your neighbors you've changed. I'll visit you later. And if you're still following, you, following Jesus, then, then I will baptize you. When Webster arrived in Chang's village five months later, he found hundreds of people inquiring. I'm going to tell you that is still happening among no-suit people today. And one of the marks, whether someone is a follower of Jesus Christ, is if they have told someone else about Jesus. While there, we were visiting someone, and we were concerned about his salvation because he hadn't told anyone about Jesus. As I was praying for this and working through this, it started to occur to me, oh my, what if we applied this same condition in our church? <laughs> How many of us would be members in good standing because we've been sharing the gospel with people? And so they do that. Chang's eyesight didn't last, but his evangelistic zeal continued on. He traveled from village to village, winning hundreds to Christ. Missionaries followed in his wake, and they were able to baptize and organize churches of, the, of these new converts. And when he was finally arrested by the boxers, he was put in an open cart and driven to a nearby graveyard. While he was singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. At the cemetery, he was shoved into a kneeling position. Three times he uttered the same words that Stephen said here. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit before the sword sliced through his neck and ended it. The boxers were so deeply shaken by Chang's quiet authority that they drenched his body in oil and burned it so as to prevent, in their thinking, his resurrection. They were still apprehensive, and they were treated from that area altogether. Listen, one believer surrendered to the Spirit of God, to the Word of God, loving people. What can God do with someone like that? Before Stephen gave his life in death, he gave his life in service. Before he gave his life in service, he surrendered it to the Spirit of Jesus Christ, to the faith, and to the Word. Ordinary person. Hadn't been a believer a long time. None of them had. You want to end your life for Jesus? You've got to live it in service. You want to live your life in service of Jesus? You've got to surrender the Spirit and to the Word of God and faith. Every circumstance is an opportunity to trust God and surrender Him. Every relationship is an opportunity to love someone. How does that happen? You get a vision of Jesus. Will you pray for me and pray with me that we all together get a vision of who Jesus is and that we'll look for that and let that drive us? Let's pray.